You know an issue has risen to the top of the national imagination when it gets featured on The Daily Show. It turns out the high cost of college has hit that milestone. A few months ago, the guest on today's podcast, Sarah Goldrick-Robb, went on the show to talk with Trevor Noah about her book, Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream. If they were going to tackle college costs, Goldrick-Robb was a natural pick because of her passion and also because she's done her homework on the struggles that today's students face as they try to pay for college. Her book is based on six years of research that tracked thousands of students on Pell Grants. And she's not shy about suggesting how she thinks financial aid needs to change, and about criticizing income share agreements and other new ideas that are popular with venture capitalists these days. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. For this week's episode, I got to talk with Goldrick Robb about her big ideas for the future of student aid, and about what it was like to be on The Daily Show. We'll have the conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, we're joined today by Sarah goldrick Robb, a professor of higher education policy and sociology at Temple University and author of Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So there's some deep research behind your latest book. Um, in fact, your team followed 3,000 college students um, over uh, six years, and they, all of these were students on Pell Grants and to track their struggles paying for college um, and their just kind of their experiences. And your conclusion, it seems, is that some of our standard narratives about higher education are simply not true um, anymore if they ever were. And I'm curious to talk about some of those um, misconceptions that you, you you argue about in the in the book um, that the college policy world especially sort of seems to to have. Um, I guess w- one to start off, uh, one common narrative that you're challenging in your book is that you argue that in our national debate, we end up blaming students in a way um, if they can't pay for college sometimes, um, that the programs are there. So they, you know, they must just not be using them correctly if they're not getting through. Um, is that, is that fair? And could you say a little bit more about, about kind of the way we think about some of these students, um, and debt? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the centerpiece of all of higher education policy in this country is financial aid. In other words, we spend a lot of money and a lot of our focus goes towards providing money to people who we believe are the neediest folks in terms of their economic situation, distributing resources to them, and therefore we believe effectively addressing their economic constraints. So that if they show up in college and they have filled out the FAFSA, which is a small American bureaucratic tragedy all its own. This is the, yeah, the basic federal financial that. aid form, right? Uh-huh. Exactly. You know, if they manage to do that, then we tell ourselves that money-wise, they've been taken care of. And therefore, if anything else is to happen to them, if they, if they don't make it through college, for example, or they struggle afterwards with debt, this is really somehow a personal problem that is created by a lack of knowledge, a lack of resilience, maybe a lack of information, hmm. but not really a lack of money. And what I'm really taking on, because this is what we saw with the students, 
is this idea that this isn't really about money. The students really reinforce what the Wu-Tang Clan has told us, which is that cash rules everything around me in college. Cream. It is really the case Hmm. that the aid system fails in so many ways to alleviate economic constraints and money is really central. And it seems like, I mean, some of this is the story of, and you, you looked specifically at public colleges, that some of this has been a, a shift away, right, from state support for, for higher education. Um, I know in Wisconsin is where you focus, but this is something that's happening in other states as well. Oh, it absolutely is. You know, while we, of course, did focus in this study on Wisconsin, because that's where we were able to do this work, it is by no means an anomaly. And the rest of the country is really realizing that right now. You know, most undergraduates in this country go to public colleges and universities, even though we spend an awful lot of our time talking about places like Harvard. So if 75% of the undergraduates are in the public sector, then the real story about what people can afford in college has got to be about the public sector. And it's in the public sector where prices and resources for financial aid have changed a lot over time. So for example, it used to be that the state governments pretty much struck up a deal with each family who wanted to send their students to college or each adult who wanted to go themselves. The state government said, look, you want to go to college? All right. We will pay, say, three quarters of the deal, and you will pay a quarter. And students were actually able to do pretty well in that deal. That left them with a price they could generally afford. And if they couldn't afford it, there was enough financial aid to go around to take care of the rest. Now, at a time when more people go to college than ever before, and frankly, college students are more diverse than ever before, I mean, we have to be honest that there are more black and brown and low-income folks in college than we've ever seen. States are striking a very different deal. Instead of saying, we'll put in three quarters, if their students are lucky, the states are saying we'll put in half, and sometimes they'll only put in a quarter, which leaves the student footing a much bigger part of the bill, and there's a lot less financial aid on a per-student basis to go around. So the prices are higher. The resources for covering those prices are much more limited. And to top it all off, this is happening at a time when most American families are not getting ahead. They're seeing their income stagnate or decline. And so the result is, again, that money is so central to who gets college and who doesn't. You know, I was going to, so it seems like there's also this story we, we tell ourselves, I think in this country, or a lot of times comes up that, you know, that college access is about merit or can be, and that the best students in the country can go to the best schools, you know, if they get in and, um, that somehow, you know, that the grants and loans will, will, will kind of work out whether that's at the selective publics or privates. But in your book, you, you, and just now you're saying that this, this, Price, uh, I think you say in the book, price, not intellect or effort, is the primary sorting mechanism in today's colleges and universities. I think that might surprise some people. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to increase the odds that you get into a selective college or that you receive a low price for college, you are far better off ensuring that your parents have a lot of money than you are ensuring that you're an excellent student in high school. The odds are much, much greater based on how much wealth and income your family possesses 
than based on your own talent and hard work. The system is rigged, so to speak, I guess. It is rigged. And the thing is, it's been rigged for a very long time. And so it's not as if this is a new problem that we didn't recognize. Going back to the 1960s, it was Senator Claiborne Pell and his colleagues who created the Pell Grant program who said that it should be hard work and talent that determines college attainment in this country and not family income. And that's why they set up the financial aid system in the first place. Fast forward 50 years later, family income plays a bigger role in determining college attainment than it even did then in the 1960s. Hmm. So rather than fix the problem, or that, that at this, at least for where we're at now, it is things are not better, they're worse than then. Right. And, and I, I do want to be clear that I'm not saying it's the financial aid system's fault, right? There are those who want to claim that because the government got involved in subsidizing the price of education, it messed up everything. That's simply not true. There are lots of people who went to college over the last 50 years because financial aid was available. At the same time, the system that we set up to deliver that financial aid was broken from the start in many, many ways. It made a set of assumptions, mainly about the good intentions of every actor. So the good intentions of states. It assumed that states would continue to support students no matter what. It assumed that private institutions, just like public institutions, would keep their prices down because that's what students needed. These assumptions all proved wrong. States pulled back, private institutions tested the market and found, lo and behold, that in the United States, if a college costs more money, more people will apply. And they exploited that to hike their prices. And state governments, because these are private institutions, couldn't do a darn thing about it. But they still continued to send their state financial aid and some of their other monies taxpayer-backed monies to those private institutions. So at the end of the day, we've got a system that essentially said from the start, we want to make college affordable, but we're going to first prioritize choice. And like choice models in K-12 education, this has failed to increase equity. And uh, we'll get back to that in a minute because I think it's a fascinating trade-off that I'm hearing about a lot these days between sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of selectivity and then this and access. But um, there's another recent book about financial aid that I know you're, I'm sure you're familiar with by Beth, Aker, Beth Akers and Matthew um, Chingos that called Game of Loans, which argues that even though students today do have higher loans they concede than in the past, that they also end up with higher incomes and that the student loan burden compared to the past actually hasn't changed so that the burden on students is actually similar and that in other words, like it's a big purchase, like buying a house. So you just need to take out a big loan. Um, and that things aren't as bad as, as the way you paint them. What is your response to their argument? Right. So they're essentially contending that there really isn't a student loan crisis and that the problems that we think that we're seeing are really, um, obscured you know, that they're, that they're really about the one thing we do agree on is, we do agree that this is not really a problem about six-figure debt with people with $200,000 loans. We do agree that the most vulnerable people are those with, say, $5,000 of debt who just simply didn't get a college credential, and that's the biggest issue. Right, and they're at a low-income point, so 5000 for them right. is, is a lot. We disagree, though, on the larger question of whether these high prices for college represent a problem. So they're simply looking at this 
through a lens that says college is an investment. It's worth it. It pays off. So you should go ahead and borrow for it. It's really not an issue. The problem with that, there are many problems with that. I mean, first, college does not pay off for everybody in the same ways. They're looking at averages, average returns for those sorts of things, and they're projecting them based on the students of the past and their returns. Today's students are far more disadvantaged on average than yesterday's students. They also include more students of color, for example, who, and women who are going to face continued discrimination in the labor market, whether or not they go to college. They aren't going to reap the same returns, nor is the same certainty present in today's labor market that was present in yesterday's. Now, none of that means that college isn't worth it because, of course, the purpose of college is not only to get economic returns. The education pays off in many ways, including by creating more stability in general in one's life, in helping promote innovation, people who know more do more, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But we also disagree with the assumption that everybody's going to buy into simply mortgaging their futures for things we tell them are worthwhile. There are a lot of some of the most vulnerable students out there today who come from cultures that don't believe in borrowing in order to finance things you need. They live in the here and now because they know better than to count on the future. Latino students, Native American students, for example, some of the fastest growing populations in this country are what we call, quote, loan averse. Well, all that means is they're not buying into our pushy narrative about how they should finance their lives. And so if we create a college financing system that requires them to take student loans, they aren't going to get college. And I'd argue that would create a real crisis. We cannot afford to have large swaths of people in this country not getting a post-secondary education because the way that we financed it is unacceptable to them. So, and some colleges are experimenting um, with income share agreements or ISAs, um, these income share agreements where students um, sort of, where it kind of addresses a little bit of what you're describing as I understand it. Cause it, in, in some ways it says, okay, you don't have to take out a loan now, but if to do these income share agreements, you'll sign up and promise to give a, cer- a percentage of your wages once you get a job after college for a few years and that'll pay it back rather than, um, take out the money up front. So I guess I'm curious what you think of, of that recent kind of policy approach that Purdue University is experimenting with, some other upstarts are trying it. Um, what do you think of yeah, that approach? Well, I, I, th- I think some people call it innovative. I think it's dangerous. And I think it's dangerous for a couple of reasons. First, I don't think it does resolve the problem um, that I was describing earlier. I think that folks who know that their economic lives are fragile that like the financial diaries, the new book recently revealed there's volatility across the United States and American families are going to be very wary and rightfully so of giving away part of their future income to quote repay through an ISA. I think that they know that the expenses that their families are facing are growing, that it's actually hard to predict. Now you not only have to take care of yourself, your partner, your children, and now your parents, and that healthcare costs and other sorts of things are creeping in to crowd out the ability to have any discretionary income in one's budget. So I think that people are going to be looking ahead and saying, no, there's way too much uncertainty for me to take that on. 
So the only people who are going to benefit from this are the people who already have the advantages of having economic security. So I don't think it resolves the, the, cru- the crucial issue of increasing opportunity for the most vulnerable folks. I also think it represents a, and a, a quote, solution that is fully privatized. So rather than the government and taxpayers together saying, look, we value people being able to get an education and we're going to support it together so that we ensure that everybody does get it. This says individuals are going to bear it on their backs. I can't imagine what this country would have looked like if we had decided to finance elementary school for people through ISAs. You know, we, we decided to do broad-based government support for that program because we really couldn't imagine people not having an elementary school education, which we gradually expanded to become a secondary education. And I think it's very reasonable in the 21st century to at least argue that it should include grades 13 and 14. So you were just at the ASU GSV summit where, and as you saw, you know, there are a lot of, um, of the kind of people trying the, these kind of private sector innovation, the, the kind of entrepreneurs and, and a lot of this, this private sector kind of push. What, what was your, what, what would you tell them? And I guess you did have a, get a chance to speak there, but what, what would your advice be to, to that crowd? And um, obviously some of them read us as well. Many of them read us too. So what, what would you say to that crowd? to sort of, if you had their ear of the way they should think about this, um, this, the problems of, of student access. Yeah, well, I mean, I think first, I think the private sector needs to recognize how much it needs an educated workforce to be coming out of this nation's schools. And I think that it does realize that with regard to K-12 schools, and it's begun to take a very active interest in improving those schools. The same sort of thing applies to higher education at this point. And I also think that the private sector has a great interest in having a diverse workforce. And the folks who are getting the most hung up by these prices, let's be honest, are people of color. So it has a differential effect on them. If you want female workers, if you want people of color, if you want people from working class families to work with you in the private sector to create innovative technologies or whatever else, you're going to have to ensure that they can finish college. I also think that the private sector should be looking towards public-private partnerships. I think rather than propose to create solutions that are only in the private sector, I think that for really important priorities like education, we are best uh, situated if we engage the private sector through partnerships with the public sector, where there really is the potential for um, both innovation and nimbleness and all of that sort of thing, but also widespread and democratic input into the process and some sustainability, because there really is no substitute for taxpayer support for many of these programs. You know, we've seen colleges and universities that have thought, well, we can basically become like businesses and go stand on our own two feet because the state isn't funding us very much anymore. They've been incredibly naive and they have fallen apart because they have never been able on their own to replace the incredible amount of money that still is flowing from states into those institutions. So I spoke at ASU GSC about a problem that, as I told folks, I don't think the private sector can solve on its own, but it better pay attention to, which is the growing number of college students who can't even focus on doing the sorts of workforce preparation activities they're interested in because they're food and housing insecure. We have a growing number of hungry and even homeless college students. And if we skip past that, we've missed the boat. Yeah. And and you talk about this in the book as well. You propose in a way thinking of supporting college students 
um, the way we support K-12 students where, you know, there are free lunch and breakfast programs and, and because the student loan system as we have, it doesn't cover incidentals uh, as it's, as it's sometimes cause, uh, called. So in other words, living and eating. And, and do you think that proposal, it seems like you've gotten some um, reaction to that proposal and some of it positive. Do you think there's some feasible proposal there that could be, could be workable? I absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, I think that, look, people like common sense ideas. And this is very common sense. We all know how hard it is to do the very difficult work, uh, the cognitive thinking involved in, you know, the self-actualization involved in, in high level higher education activities if you haven't eaten or slept the night before. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we need to reinvent the wheel here. We've got programs and policies that feed people and house people. I mean, at this moment, we have to make sure we don't cut those things. You know, we have a secretary of education who claimed that there's no such thing as free lunch. Well, there is, and it feeds children all over this country every day. And they wouldn't be learning without it. And we have to protect that. We also have to protect food stamps, for example, that are helping people to make ends meet. They don't live off of food stamps alone, but it helps to fill in the gaps when their budgets do have holes in them. Those food stamps are hardly available to today's college students. And that's ridiculous because, as we know, financial aid is falling well short of the bills. Loans can be used to cover housing, but they often can't because they're so busy covering things like tuition and books and supplies. So we can put supports into place, housing supports and food supports, so that we can return to the other activities, for example, of helping students to learn higher math or to learn the latest technology. And I'm hearing from both parties and from, frankly, the religious community, you know, that there is a moral imperative to making sure that if we want people to learn, that we make sure that they're fit. I guess the, um, that there is a, this political climate we're in and, and a lot of the, the arguments you're making really do go back to public support. And it, it does seem like a, it seems like an uphill battle in the rhetoric that the political environment we have. Um, and yet there have been a lot of talk about free college programs. Um, how, how optimistic are you or, or, or where are you these days about whether some sort of free college initiative um, could go forward in the, in the administration we're in? I mean, I think if there's one thing I've learned over the last 15 years is that really important changes don't happen overnight. And any scholar of history knows that. So for those of us working on public policy, we knew this was going to be a long slog. The point is to make progress. And I believe firmly that hope is a strategy. So I think optimism is very productive here. I think that we're in tough times where we have leadership that not only disagrees with us, but isn't interested in science and isn't grounding their policies in basic facts. I'm hopeful that the American people are going to figure this out. They're going to demand policies that meet their needs and that we can continue to connect with their own lived experiences. For example, when I talk to anybody of any political party and we talk about the level of dismay and frustration and distrust and anger they feel when it comes to college prices, we connect. And that's the most important part is that we both understand there is a problem. The next step 
is to decide who is responsible for fixing it. And after that, how best to fix it. Is free college the best approach? We don't know. But it is pretty crazy to resist it when it is a viable possibility. And we should move forward so that we can learn about it rather than continuing to perpetuate a system that clearly has failed us for 50 years. So in some, some cases, you're, I know you're speaking to a lot of student groups and you're, you're very active on Twitter and, and um, certainly make your views known, but you're, um, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not running for, uh, for office yourself, uh, although I'm sure with the, you, you, you may be able to get in there. I almost feel like I'm asking one of those questions like on CNN of like, is, you know, is there, is there some, um, something you're not telling us? Are you going to start a uh, – are you going to run for <laughs> office yourself? I'm not going to run for office because I don't think it's the most effective way to do what I want to do. So, I mean, I'm first and foremost a researcher, and I came to all of the conclusions that I just described really and truly through studying the problems that are out there. And I mean, this is something, it's not like 20 years ago, I said to myself, you know, I want to go push free college in the United States. So let me go get a PhD so I can do it. I think that we need more people who, who dissect and investigate social problems, but also move to the next step. And I think that is where you're hearing a difference. I'm a scholar activist, which means I think we have a responsibility as scientists, once we've learned something about a problem and how to fix a problem, to act on doing something about it. And I actually think there are a lot of other people out there who can be good politicians. There aren't as many of us who get as excited as I do about digging into the facts and spending the time trying to to assess the problem. And so, no, I'm not running for office, but I am opening a new center. And next uh, fall, I'll launch something called the Hope Center for College Community and Justice. And I don't think we've seen anything like it in higher ed because we're not going after low-hanging fruit. We're going after the toughest problems out there, problems that we refer to as wicked problems, the kind of stuff where you peel back apart and something disgusting comes crawling out of it because it's so rotten at the core. You know, we think that, that there are some really massive social problems that are at the same time connecting with massive education problems and that unless we start building bridges between social and educational policies, and we start connecting what happens in education to what happens in the rest of society, we're not going to get more people the opportunities that they so richly deserve. I'll let you get back to that work. Thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and plans today. I appreciate the time. Thank you. I, and I enjoyed your, um, I, I did enjoy your daily show appearance quite a lot. Um, oh, <laughs> that was, it was that, quite an experience. I have to tell you, I don't remember it myself because I felt like I was in a blackout. So oh. it was so completely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't come that across so that intimidating. way. It didn't come across yeah. that way. I know. I'm amazed at it. I see it from <laughs> time to time and I'm like, who was that woman? Cause I look poised and I felt like I was going to just crawl in a hole. So. Yeah. I got to, I, I one time was in the audience of the old John Stewart show just to, you know, just like yeah. visiting a friend in New York or something. And um, yeah. yeah, it's, it seems like, it seems like a real hard, that seems like a real hard seat. It's a hard thing to do. You have to be very, very poised and sharp and, yeah. and, I really don't know who that person was. I'm glad she was there that day. So, okay. This has been the Ed Surge on Air podcast. 
as regular listeners know by now, I host every other week with the other episodes hosted by my colleague Mary Jo Matta. If you missed it, you should definitely check out her last interview with Clint Smith, a poet and scholar. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.